You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 181. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast apps. Uh, if you can, leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate it. Uh, we do love to hear those new reviews. Yep, visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And if you're on the uh, bird site, you can follow us at codingblocks. And we don't tweet often, but when we do, it's super good. And if you're looking for other places uh, to interact with us, codingblocks.net uh, has all our social links at the top of the page. With that, um, Jerzak. <laughs> Jerzak? Did you put an R in your name? He did. Yeah. I'm changing. I'm trying things. Oh, okay. Well, I'm. I'm going to try to say I'm Miracle Outlaw. Uh, Would that be right? That sounds yeah, too much like Miracle. What it said? I was trying to say Michael with an R, like to follow suit, but I guess it didn't work. Yeah, I don't yeah, think that'll work. That's good. Yeah. So I'm Alan Underwood. It, I don't know. That's so much funnier than it should be. But. That's good, right? It's because it's late, man. We never start too late. Well, it kind of hey, almost so, has like a German t- kind of take on it. Would you say it? Say it again. Alan Underwood. Yeah. Or <laughs> Underbar. Is what Underwood. it makes me think of. Yeah. I guess yeah. it's not German. What, oh, wait, gosh. wait. Or is it? I don't know. Whatever. It's late. Yeah, whoever we offended, we are apologizing. Yeah. No, no offense, man. No offense, man. Um, so... Um, tonight we are going to start in on a book that Outlaw was actually really interested in, and it's Site Reliability Engineering: How Google Runs Their Production Systems. So that's where we're going to kick off this evening. But first, first we want to get to our news section. All right, and so uh, as we, like I said before, we like to say thanks to those who left us a review. We love to get those reviews, and uh, so. We got a new review from Audible from Amazon customer. And that's excellent. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows immediately who I'm talking about. You're like, oh wait, really? You <laughs> that's you me left a review? <laughs> like, yeah. That's right. You know exactly who that is. And it was actually a very nice review, so thank you for taking the time to leave it. Um But that's it for our news. So I guess we'll go ahead and jump into this thing. Yeah. And uh, the first thing you're going to see down there in the notes is a to-do for me, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. So I'm uh, scrambling a little bit here. Hang on. Uh, so we're talking about a book. It's called uh, Site Reliability Engineering. And you this just book, said something. I don't know that you actually said those words properly. <laughs> that, that, I thought that <laughs> was what we were doing You his name right. right. Were you expect him to say these words doing. right? The Sir Robert book. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's like the Swedish chef of uh, my talk thing. show host. Schmurgy, verdy, verdy, verdy. This show yeah, is going off for... the rails. We're just getting started. Yeah, man. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, uh, about that show. So, what we're talking about is a book called Site Reliability Engineering. How. <laughs> It's almost 10 o'clock, y'all. Site reliability. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. No, you'll get it. I swear you'll get it the third time. Oh, I'm not saying it ever ever again. Never again. Can you see how purple I am in the camera? 
Yes, it's kind of scaring me. Uh, we're talking about the SRE book. <laughs> You've never heard of SRE. Nobody says the words out loud because nobody can say them out loud, obviously. <laughs> if I can't say it, who can? <laughs> I mean, we're not laughing at you, Joe. All right, so so where were you going with this? So this book is interesting. This is an O'Reilly book, right? But this book is uh, written by a bunch of Google engineers about Google. Hey, real quick, though, before you get to that next bullet point, we're going to give away a free copy of this one? Absolutely. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, we do that one. Uh, yeah. Okay. So we're doing that. Uh, the book was published in 2016. And at the time, the term SRE, whatever it stands for, was pretty new. Maybe even literally new at the time of uh, the publishing of the book. So no one had really heard of it very much. Uh, and it was written by a bunch of people who work at Google about what they do at Google. And even though the book is published by O'Reilly, you can actually go to SRE.Google and get the book for free. You can just download it. And it's just a website hosted by Google. They have a couple other things too, including like workbooks. It's meant to kind of go along with it. And uh, another book called Building Secure and Reliable Systems, also free. Just to, the easy link to just the books portion though is sre.google slash books. And then there's three books there that you can read online for free. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? Uh, and so anyway, and uh, each kind of chapter of the book is uh, essentially an essay that deals with kind of one aspect of what they're calling uh, SREs, which we're going to be diving into. And so I just want to kind of get that uh, out there. Uh, and one other thing before we kind of dive in, I just pulled some stats. So I figured we'd throw them here at the beginning because we just talked about kind of salaries and stuff last episode. So I went and tried to look at like uh, basically the career trajectory of SREs. You know, we said it's kind of a new term, new field. Uh, and if you just do any sort of Googling on SREs, you'll see that uh, people are pretty uh, pretty bullish on it, I guess you could say. Uh, I found some stats uh, that kind of summed it up well from a site called global.com. I have no clue who that is, but they seem to agree with the other sites, and I liked how they kind of put it. Wait, global.com. Dot, dot .com, yes, global. Dot. <laughs> Terrible name. Globaldot.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. And uh, so they give you a median base salary for this position of $200,000. Hold up. That link does not take me to a site, just so you know. Uh, it's down in the resources we like, too. So I'll grab it from there. Yeah, let me go down there. Yeah. yeah that- and the, the subject of this article is why is SRE becoming 2021's hottest hire? It's globaldots.com. D-O-T-S. Still a terrible name. All right. Yes. All right. Moving on. There we go. Keep going. Yeah. So median salary of 200000 And Remember, median, that's a good number. That means the the, peop- the person in the middle is making 200 It's not the average, so it's not like totally skewed by like numbers, uh, you know, one of these companies. Although I will say uh, if a company has SREs, they're probably, you know, pretty big and mature. And we'll get into that. And also, they're also uh, uh, pretty current. Pretty current. Yeah. I mean, this didn't even exist uh, six years ago. So it's pretty new. This podcast uh, is older than this job title. That's true. We've never heard of it before. Uh, career advancement score. They give it a score of nine out of 10, which is pretty hot. Uh, job openings, year over year growth, uh, up 72%. They got 1,400 uh, new job postings. 
Uh, so yeah, so pretty good. So this is a hot field. This is something that you might be interested in looking more into if you like this sort of thing. That's, that's pretty good info right there. So let's go ahead and jump into we're we're in this particular episode, we're going to cover the preface and the first chapter, just, just so that we can sort of set the baseline of what this is. So the thing that makes this one unique and Joe already mentioned it is this is written by people at Google and it's only one company, right? So you don't have this mixture of pie in the sky type stuff. These are things that they actually did and their experiences doing it. And so it's nice to get that from a company that deals with the kind of scale that they do. Right. Um, and I can't wait for things- you to get like later in the book. There's some super inner, because this is just about Google they get like into some interesting weeds as to like how Google runs behind the scenes. Now with that said, you know, as we go through this book, uh, there's, there might be terminology or things that like, Hey, this is how Google did it, blah, blah, blah. And there might be current Googlers that would say like, Oh, well that's not how we do it anymore or whatever. So, you know, we're coming at it from the perspective of this book though. Uh, at least at the time of the writing, like that's how it was said, like, Hey, this is how we do things. So, you know, I'm sure that they would have, uh, you know, advanced their their own practices in the last five years, seven years, whatever math. Totally. And And just because Google doesn't mean it's appropriate for your company to you're not Google, but maybe it could be, maybe there's some things in here that are good for you. And there's a lot of other companies that now have SRE teams. Yeah. If nothing else, you get some ideas of things that can help improve your business. Right. Um, and one of the things that they said about this is they were interested in scaling the business process, not just the machinery. Right. So yeah, that's, that's huge because honestly it's the business processes that seem to get in the way a lot. Um, the communication around those processes. Right. And then just what Joe said a second ago about, you know, Hey, this, not everybody's the size of Google. They actually called out, Hey, this, this tale should be for emulating and not copying, right? Like tweak it to whatever suits what you have in your business. Um, this is not necessarily a blueprint that everybody should have to follow. Yeah, you want the results, not the process. Did you say uh, 40 to 90% of your effort is, uh, is what's the term I'm looking for? Um, post deployment. Uh, cost is the word I was looking for. 40 to percent, uh, 40 to 90% of your cost for delivering software happens after you've deployed a system, which is funny because we usually talk about kind of the first launch and how much effort and how long things took to develop the first time. And we so rarely talk about how long it takes after it gets launched, how long it takes to maintain what new features. And, and so, uh, we've got this kind of like in, you know, industry, industry focus on this f- kind of first period, even though, the second period, the second half goes on much longer. Well, they, they literally refer to it as the labor involved in, they make the analogy that, uh, you know, um, that it has, that software development has it in common with, um, has one thing in common with childbirth. And that is that, uh, you know, the, the labor and delivery up front is painful and difficult, but it's, the labor afterwards that is where you as a parent spend the majority of your time. Uh, right. And that that's what it's like with, with software development too, is that, you know, we have this like industry practice of, you know, that's where we've put all of our focus on like, Hey, let's develop this greenfield app and we're going to like, 
put all of these best practices in from the front, blah, 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 blah. And like, um, and then, and then magically like we're interested in deploy it and we'll never look at it again. But the reality is, is that like, once you do put that thing out there in the world, you know, from that point forward is where you're going to spend the bulk of your time. You know, I mean, look at Google, for example, right? Like they, they started out in the nineties, right. But they're still constantly, um, you know, iterating on and advancing their search engine that started them. Right. Yeah. And, and one of the key takeaways here for me was just when you call a system stable, that doesn't mean that you're not dealing with it. Right. And that was one of their key, their key call outs is stable. Doesn't mean you don't touch it. You're still putting time and effort into the thing. It just means that it mostly runs the way it's supposed to at that point. Right. All right. So, I guess the, the next thing is what is site reliability engineering? Um, and they actually put together a definition that I really liked. And it's engineers who apply the principles of computer science and engineering to design and the development of computing systems, usually large distributed ones. So, so software engineers doing what they do, except you're applying it to the operation side of things. Um, you write software for those systems. And you're building all the additional pieces of systems need. So like backups, load balancers, all the other things that come into play that, that you need to run your system. And then also how to apply solutions to new problems. So, you know, taking the software engineering approach to doing those things. And I mentioned that uh, they consider reliability to be the most fundamental feature of any product. And that, I think, kind of flies in the face of a lot of what you see on, like, Hacker News or Reddit or whatever, where you hear a lot about kind of innovation. Uh, so it's, it's kind of uh, refreshing in a way to hear a company talking about reliability being uh, more of a priority. And uh, that's something you're going to see echoed in this book throughout as they keep coming back to uh, reliability. Because software doesn't matter much if it can't be used and needs to be reliable enough. That doesn't mean perfect. But once you've achieved reliable enough, and we'll get into defining that, then you can spend more time developing new features or new products. Yeah. They, they actually um, later in the book, they get super into like defining enough, you know, what constitutes enough because, you know, I think there's like this perfectionist part in us where like we want something, we want to develop something that's quote perfect and, you know, and, bug free and, you know, not have to worry about it. Right. Like that, that's our, that's always our goal when like, you know, talk about like, uh, all the unit testing that we, we, we've ever talked about and, uh, you know, trying to like abstract things perfectly and put interfaces to things like, so that it is like low maintenance kind of things. And, and, but the reality is that if you ever, like, let's suppose that you did create a system that was perfect. Well, for one, it couldn't have been very complex, right? I mean, what's the chances that it was complex and you made it perfect, but also too, how useful would it really be? And like how much cost did it take you in time and effort in order to make it a hundred percent perfect? And they go into numbers where like uh, later in the book, where like just adding, like you've heard terms like three nines of reliability or four nines of reliability. And if you haven't, um, if you're new to software field, then I mean like, three nines of not of reliability would be like 99.9%, 
or four nines would be 99.99%. And they talk about the cost later in the book about like adding that additional nine, uh, you know, uh, decimal point, uh, to it. And like, you know, how do you decide whether or not it's worthwhile to go after that, uh, that additional nine, you know, things like that. It gets a lot more expensive. Every ad, ad, for going from nine percent to ninety nine percent, you get a lot of value there for not as much effort. Going from five nines to six nines, it's gonna cost. It's gonna cost you a lot to get there. And is it really gonna be worth it? Especially when your customers are, uh, you know, com- communicating to you over the internet and they've got their own outages. And, you know, they're not even gonna receive the advantages of that. And so you got to figure out where to draw that line. And that's one of the things that SREs do. Yeah, That's actually a repeating thought to you, though. That was in um, designing data intensive applications, too, because they talked about it over there, about how just increasing that nine was like there's there's a point of not even diminishing returns of just negative returns, right? Because you're going to spend a ton of development money on trying to get that, and it may not even matter. So, so there's going to be some like crossing of the streams between like designing data intensive applications, maybe. But I was thinking more about like the DevOps handbook in in this book um but yeah they they actually do later in the book and like hey here's how you can quantify some of this stuff to see if it's even worth going after that additional nine but you know to joe's point like yeah they they actually call out in the book that like you know your users may not even recognize the need or that that you added that extra nine for example or or let's let's just say that you were able to get to a hundred percent reliability right but, you know, it took you an exorbitant amount of time and effort and money to get to there, right? They said the reality is, is that the the way your customers are even getting to use your service, they likely wouldn't even notice the difference between 99.9 and, and 100% reliability because they're, the phone that they're using might be slow, the connectivity of their phone service to their cellular service at that time, or whatever, you know, because they're traveling and, you know, ch- swapping cells as they're uh, trying to browse it, like they might not even notice it. So you put all that effort in for a, <clears throat> this, uh, you know, fictional character that could use the system that already has the perfect, uh, you know, access to it that just doesn't exist. So, yep. All right. So one of the other things that they, they tacked on, like some of the other focuses of these SREs are, are like managing storage or an email service or a search service, right? Like they, they also try and keep these things alive. Um, and this was specific to Google, obviously, right? Like they were talking about their Gmail and their, and you know, their storage platform and all that. Um, so Reliability is regarded as the primary focus of the SRE. And it this was really cool to hear them call this out. They said that they wrote the book largely to help the community as a whole by exposing what Google did to solve their problems, right? Their post-deploy problems. And they also did this to help them define what they believe the role should be, right? So it was like this, this multifaceted thing that they were doing here that was helping everybody else and themselves internally to to fix some of their processes and things that they had going on internally that was one of the things that i thought was super cool about it was that they were like trying to help the industry by solve like there's this need for this role but we don't know what to call it right but but here's what we think are the responsibilities and like we're going to throw it out there to the rest of the world 
and you know the rest of the world can you know ad- buy into it or add on to it or you know what it tailor it to their needs but you know just google's way of trying to trying to help and and the guy who actually termed coined the term at google who is one of the google vps of like uh 24/7 operations um <clears throat> he he's one of the contributors to the book his name was uh ben uh, you know how I am with names, so get ready. Hear me out. Ben Trainor Sloss, is that? I don't remember. Perfect. Uh, that was it. That was it. Hey, hey, I won one. I got one. <laughs> I feel like I'm in Ghostbusters. We got one. All right. So, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah. So, so you know, I also found that kind of interesting about this book, though, too, is that like you know, a, a VP took. The time out of his busy day to help write this book no doubt um it so kind of open source is almost like they kind of released something out in the wild they got some feedback and they incorporated it and other people using it yeah it's awesome and they called out to like we mentioned that if you're a small business you're, you're not going to necessarily be able to do everything here but you should be able to take away some of these concepts and 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 they may be able to help you in your business um, this next part, this next part kills me because I feel like everything I read, this is the case. Um, the earlier you care about reliability, the better, right? And what they mean by that is it's way less costly to implement some things up front, right? Like even if it's just a lightweight support capability, then to do it after you're way further along, you have nothing in place and it's going to be really expensive to try and get those things in. But the reason why this is crazy to me is don't we hear this about security and, and just about everything else in software development? Oh, you got to do it up front. Otherwise, I was you know. just going to say the same thing. I was going to say like, it's literally like pick a, pick a topic in computer science or in com- software development. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's much easier if you care about that up front, like unit testing. It's so much easier to test your application up front if you've like coded for it. Otherwise, like you'll have leaked in dependencies and whatnot and, you know, be harder to abstract those and mock those out. So you got to do it up front or like, oh man, if you don't start with DevOps up front, if you don't have like an automated pipeline, then it's so much harder to come after the, you know, come back behind the scenes and, and add it. So yeah, that was the one, that was the w- one rub here that I have. It's like, yeah, okay, I get it. It's easier to care about the reliability up front. Yeah, okay. But also that's the same truth for everything. Yeah. It's easier I mean, to carry, to care about pointer math up front as you're iterating <laughs> through your array than it is to later find out, oh, I went too far. I mean, also the, MVP, right? It's, you should yeah. get your thing out to the customers and start selling before you even build it. <laughs> but yeah. They're all competing. I mean, they're not wrong, right? I mean, what they're saying is absolutely correct, but I mean, how much stuff can you build up front for your MVP? It's frustrating. Yeah. So, so, uh, who was the first SRE? Uh, cool story here. So, um, they, uh, they kind of picked on, uh, Margaret Hamilton here, who was a Apollo program director from, uh, MIT. And there's a story that they told in the book about basically how, uh, this uh this woman's kid came into the office one day and ended up pushing some buttons while they were running a simulation and uh the the Apollo rocket uh, ended up crashing during simulation and you know that wasn't supposed to happen so they looked into it and found out that the the kid had ended up triggering like some sort of sequence that wasn't supposed to happen at that point it, it lost the uh, navigation data and uh so you know the Margaret Hamilton ended up like trying to write a defect and documented it 
And uh, they kind of pushed back on her and said, well, this isn't going to happen. This isn't, that wasn't supposed to happen. The astronaut would never do this, right? Um, this is not the, the thing. This is something that would never happen in production, essentially. And so they ended up not fixing the bug. They didn't prevent it. And sure enough, guess what happened? <laughs> but but you happened. know, the cool part though is she knew like exactly what you said. She was like, okay, so maybe it's not supposed to happen, but I'm going to write up some steps to recover from it anyways. And I'm going to put it in some documentation so that, it, it, you know, Hey, even though it's not supposed to happen, if it ever does, at least somebody will have something to go back to. And that was super important because guess, yeah, like Joe Zach said, somebody screwed up. Yeah. And did it. So, so what's the takeaway? The takeaway is it's easier to write your readme up front than it is <laughs> to right. go ahead and do it after the fact. That's at right. The front. That's right. You have a good readme up front, then you're okay. Uh, now, how many times have you heard that? Like, this is something that would never happen in production. So we're just going to manually do this, whatever. And we're not going to try to code around it. Nobody's ever going to try to drop the table. So we don't need yeah. to worry about those permissions. It's fine. So that's why you need a big F statement that says, like, if you're trying to drop the table, don't do it, right? Uh, you know, too specific. It's hard. The software is too hard. Let's it, just it really stop. is. So I'll just agree to stop. Yeah, we should. <laughs> I mean, computers <laughs> computers are smart enough to write it all, right? No, no. Yeah, pretty much. Low they've code. never they've never gotten the design requirements from product management. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so but we're not bitter. <laughs> not at all. No, no. I mean, it's just the way it is. Um, so the SRE way, right? Thoroughness, dedication, belief in the value, and preparation and documentation. So what we just talked about, and readme would get you. The readme is important. And awareness of what could go wrong and the strong desire to pre- to prevent it. So that's that's the SRE way. And that is the end of the the preface, <laughs> the the opening to the book. Yeah. Now right. I will say chapter one, I loved the opening quote. <laughs> you wanna you wanna tell us? Yeah. Hope is not a strategy. <laughs> and they they later go on to explain because like you read that at first and you're like, wow, that, that sounds really dark. Like, okay, I guess. But I mean, you know, rebellions were built on hope. But okay, fine. <laughs> you know, yep. uh, hope is not a strategy. But they later go on to say that you know the the point that that they explain is that from an SRE perspective, you don't rely on like hope as your your answer to anything. Like, well, you know. That'll never happen in production. I hope that'll never happen in production. So we're not going to deal with it. Like you, instead, just ensure that it can't happen in production. Yeah. Another way to another term you've heard, probably heard of the expression is basically saying like we don't even know if this is a problem in production yet. So let's not put any effort into solving it yet. And those are both. There's times and places like absolutely those are totally fair comments, and you can make decisions. You know, it's totally fair. But it's not – those are kind of at odds with the SRE's kind of mindset about things. So I think an SRE in a situation where somebody said that's never going to happen prod or, um, you know, we don't know if this is a problem yet is they would say, okay, well, let's document it somewhere. Let's get some thoughts together. So if it does happen, we're prepared just like the Margaret uh, Hamilton example. But, so. but you know what's really cool about what you just said there is when you call that out specifically from two different perspectives, right? Like the developer of the product, the person who's doing the, the product features might say that. Like, hey, this is never going to happen there. Yeah, but, I say that all the time. But they have different <laughs> – 
we've got different concerns than an SRE does, right? Like somebody who's tasked with keeping the systems running is going to look at that and be like, oh, well, you say that's not going to happen, but I can clearly see a case where this could be a problem and it, it might cause X, Y, and Z. And so I'm going to put some attention on that, right? So you have two different two different perspectives. You know, the, the product developers, they're trying to get something out the door, um, for the customers and, and the SREs are trying to keep it running for their customers, right? So you have, you have two different perspectives. And, and so it's really good to have those two different visions on it, I think. Yeah. Well, and the SRE is not a blocker. The SRE, uh, we'll get into setting budgets and for disruption and stuff with all, all sorts of stuff. But, um, the idea isn't to block changes or to not take risks. It's okay to, for systems to go down. It's about how fast to recover and, and managing that downtime and, and managing your reliability. I do want to be careful though, because the one thing that you said, Alan, with the, uh, the SRE, it almost made it sound like they were just purely in charge of operations, just purely in charge of making it run. And that's not, that's not yeah. their role. And so like in this specific chapter, like heavily, like I was thinking of this book compared to the DevOps handbook and you know, the, the, um, the clash that the dev, the DevOps handbook and specifically the Phoenix project book, you know, the companion book that went along with it. Um, you know, illustrated a good story, you know, clash of like, uh, developers versus the operations team. Right. Right. And this book, you know, as you're reading this first chapter and they're like laying the groundwork for the introduction into SREs, right. You know, it, it, there were some heavily, uh, comparisons running through my mind there. Yeah. So, they, they are not purely the ops team. Right. So I think that's what you're drilling at there. Well, yeah, because because okay, so let's so let's step into this. So the old way is that you would have this uh, sysadmin, uh, you know, you'd have a, the sysadmin approach to systems management, right? So you'd have a system administrator to run services and respond to events and update, uh, and up to updates to those systems as they would happen, right? So that person was, you know, like let's go back into the '90s, for example, you know, or or early 2000s. And, you know, that would be the person that's like, Hey, uh, they manage these rack of this rack of machines. And if you want anything installed on it, they do it. If there's ever an update that comes out from a vendor from those, um, for any of the software running on those machines, they take care of it. And like how they ever determine like which patches they were going to apply, they're willing to apply and which ones they weren't like was always like magic to me. Cause it was like, how do really do you know you're just going to like, you're just guessing, right? Like you're just going to do it, but you're guessing, right? But at any rate, uh, yeah, that was the old school way. Right. And, and you know, those, you would have teams of these people that depending on the number of machines and, you know, different software packages that needed to be maintained and the skill sets that were required for those, then, you know, those teams would grow as that capacity was needed. So you might have like one group of sysadmins that's just in charge of like one particular database technology. Another group of sysadmins that's just in charge of like uh, operating uh, one particular operating system. Like, you know, these are my Windows sysadmins. These are my Linux sysadmins, right? And, and um, 
you know, you could have like multiple sysadmins that are responsible for the same physical machine, right? Like one guy who's, who's the OS guy and another guy that's, you know, whatever software package happens to be installed on that thing. Right. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, the, 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 what did we have here? The, usually the skills for a product developer and a sysadmin are, are different. Right. So I think I've even said this before on the show that like, I always had this kind of like mindset that a, a good software developer was a decent, uh, admin and a good admin was a decent software developer. Right. But, but that's two ends of the spectrum. And, and I just kind of like have always had this vision that they kind of crossed somewhere, you know, but, uh, therefore that's why they would end up on different teams though, because there's different strengths and weaknesses among those two skill sets. And there's some, there's conflicting interests too. Like the, the sysadmin wants to keep things stable. The uh, developers want to introduce new features. And so there's always been this kind of pushback with like sysadmins or operations teams. And uh, that's uh, that's one of the the downsides. And you yeah. think about like, well, doesn't that sound great, right? You know, to keep something stable sounds sounds ideal in one mindset. But another point that they make in this book, though, is that if something is truly stable, and you're you know because the the ops team or the sysadmins aren't letting you put new things on it, then that also means that it's just growing stale and and it's going to be boring and it'll eventually not be used. Well, that's what they said, right? Like the, the two are constantly at odds with each other because what makes the system unstable is changes to the system. Right. And, and the whole role of a product developer is to make changes to the system. So obviously your sysadmins don't want to change anything and your developers are wanting to shove something in there every other minute. Right. So, so they, they are at conflict and what sucks about it is they actually talk about some of the disadvantages to splitting up these teams. And one of them is the direct cost. They said it's actually really easy to see these costs because, um, you know, as outlaw said, when the systems grow, so does your need for more sysadmins. And so you actually are growing your team and you can see these costs as they happen. Right. Um, and it doesn't scale well because, you have to have more manpower. So if you're going to add a hundred more machines um, with, you know, however many operating systems are going to be on those in today's virtualization environment, it's not necessarily a hundred. Now you've got the need for well more manpower. So it doesn't scale well. Um, but then they talked about the indirect cost, which was interesting. They said, this is subtle and it's not quite as easy to see. Right. But it usually costs more than the direct costs. So like the manpower and all that, you don't realize how much money you end up spending here. Um, so it's like communication, people building yeah. the wrong things, you know, just processes. Yeah. The communication's key because they said that um, developers and sysadmins often, often use different language, right? So they're not even communicating on the same level, right? Like what, what the developers say may not commute, may not translate exactly to what the sysadmin needs to, to hear. And so you're going to have miscommunication there. And that's, that's big. That can cause a lot more problems. And because communication is hard, that's why we need a site reliability engineer. <laughs> this is real. And everyone's done. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and here, here's another thing too. This goes back to the whole conflict and, and the two being sort of at odds with each other is you have different 
assessments about risk and the possibilities for technical solutions, right? Like the developers, like, I'll just put it in. It's not going to be a big deal. <laughs> and the, and the sysadmin's like, no way, dude, I'm going to be here all weekend dealing with this thing. If, if you mess with that. Right. So that's a thing. I mean, this is exactly everything that the DevOps handbook was talking about, right? It was like how these two groups are, you know, they're at odds with one another. They have different metrics for success. And those metrics are, you know, opposing, you know, are opposed to one another. So how, how do you win in these environments? So it was interesting that like after, because the DevOps movement had already started by this point, by the time that this term came, came to be a thing, or at least uh, from the, the book uh, became to be a thing. Um, did they even say like when SRE, the term and job title was created? They just said, so I Googled book. it. <laughs> it's funny. But yeah, in the book, the, the 2016, well, you're right. No, you're right. Okay. So the book was published in 2016, which is, I think the first time most people had heard it. I couldn't find a reference sooner. Uh, DevOps first coin was tw- uh, 2007. It's so almost 10 years prior. So, so to, okay. So then we suspect that maybe DevOps had existed before Google had this term. We don't know. Google might've had this as like an internal thing, you know, for some time before, but we suspect that it was DevOps first. But the point is, is that it's still interesting that even after the advent of DevOps, they, they still felt the need to like take it to this extra step. Yep. And, and so what's interesting after all that, like the, the, um, the being at odds with each other, they did call out some of the things that happened from this. And this is where some of the other costs come in and, and the inefficiencies in the company is, um, you know, Hey, because, because you don't want things broken, operations introduces launch and change gates, right? So now it's going to be harder for you to get your stuff into production. Um, they want to check for every problem that's ever happened before they approve something to go into production, right? So you have a new button that you're going to put on the page, and all of a sudden they're like, well, is this going to break the 500 other problems that we've seen before? Okay, that's that's going to be rough. And then that causes the dev teams to introduce fewer changes because they're like, wait a second, every time I go to push something to production, I got to go through this change gate process? No, I ain't doing that. Um, and, and so they end up putting in more feature flags and, and this is interesting. I hadn't actually heard of this, but I could totally see it happening is dev teams will start sharding their features into separate branches. So they don't even have to talk about them when they go to release this change, right? Because it wasn't part of the code base. So they don't want to have to go through this review process. So all of this is a lot of added cost, both time, money, everything, um, just to try and get things released. There it okay. So one, I, I loved that they actually referred to it as trench warfare, right? Uh, you know, it was the the way the two teams would operate against each other. But I don't know about you two. As I was reading this, I thought back to a um, shared experience that the three of us had at a previous, you know, uh, in a previous life, right? Where we used to work in a situation where we would do deployments as needed. You know, we might do three a day, you know, if that was the thing, or, you know, we might not do one at all, but, you know, depending on what the situation was, we would do what was needed. And then we got a new director that came in and one of the first change gates that he put in place was, he was like, we're going to only do deployments twice a week. 
And on these days, and that's it. And and you're going to have twelve miles of documentation and and oh. everything else behind it before you ever like it the the process of releasing took a day. Yeah. So if you were work, if you were doing two releases a week, you spent two of those days literally just documenting things to be able to get things out the door and it made it to where people just didn't even want to release anymore. And and it really made me think back to to that experience is like him putting in like this kind of gate and and it made me question I was like, you know, I wonder if like you know unbeknownst to us, maybe with his bosses like he had some kind of incentive to like ensure that uh you know from a reliability point of view that the site didn't go down and whatnot, and you know they kept making money and, and every time that we would do a uh, a deployment, then that technically meant risk of us introducing something that might bring the site down. And so from he, he might have had unbeknownst to us a very, you know, in, you know, a a cost incentive that would affect his own wallet, you know, to keep us from wanting to, to do that. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know if you guys thought if that came to your mind when you guys were reading that part of the book. No, try not to think about the past. Oh yeah. Well, that's, (laughs) That's probably a healthy outlook on life. <laughs> Is that your tip of the week? That should be, that's, you should have used that's that good, one. Right? That that's was right. good, yeah. All right, well, um, oh boy. I mean, I guess, I guess I will, I will do this review thing because like the last time you guys made it weird. So listen, we've never. <sighs> <laughs> I think like didn't you last time go into like a super like subtle voice like it was like super NPR kind of voice or something so. or so. or that's was why that we got a review did it no that's why we got a review though dang right? it when you're right you're right that's right <sighs> all right well, blame blame Amazon customer because here it comes <clears throat> hi listener. If you haven't already left us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. You can find some helpful links at www.codingbox.net slash review. And if you are a Spotify listener, you can also uh, leave a rating within the Spotify app. And uh, yeah, we, we greatly appreciate all of those reviews and everything that you can do to help spread the word about Coding Blocks. This one going out across the line to Delilah in uh, Kansas. Oh, Thank you. Should it have been Delilah in New York? <laughs> yeah, it might have been. Yeah. All right. Isn't that, that the actually, song? Okay. Uh, maybe. What? Yeah. Hey there, Delilah. What's oh. it like in New York City? Okay. Well, all right. Uh, okay. So a few episodes back, we asked, oh, wow. It was definitely a while back. We're like behind on some of these surveys because this is from New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> or no, maybe this was from like, uh, no, this is probably from like at, direct right after New Year's. Do you stick with your New Year's resolution is the question. Your choices were for the first couple of weeks or I'm pretty good until spring-ish, which I guess for like this is about the time that everybody would stop being good about it, right? Or I'm like a machine. Resolutions are rules that are not meant to be broken. Or 
Wait, those things are to be taken seriously? They're broken by noon New Year's Day. Or what are resolutions? All right, so this is what, 181? Alan, you're up first. Yeah, th- this one's clearly, wait, those things are to be taken seriously. I'm going to go with 50% here. Like, uh, I'm fairly certain most people are like, I ain't messing with these. 50%, okay. Yep. <sighs> okay, and uh, just just for fun, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm pretty good until springish with Oh, 22%. <laughs> Almost got me there. Almost got me. Okay, Math McChicken. Strikes again. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, you're both wrong. What oh, are that's... resolutions is the far and away winner with 48% of the vote? Oh, hey. I was close on the 48. percentage. All right, good. And I had the right notion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was number two? Uh, wait, those things should be taken serious. All right. Yeah. Like, um, I guess nobody really follows through on, on their resolution. I've done terrible last couple of years. So yeah. yeah, that's why I don't even try. All right. So here's the survey for this episode. You ready? <clears throat> so since we're talking about SRE and we've already like, you know, given some throwbacks to the, to the DevOps handbook. The question is, so DevOps is a culture, but SRE is a job title? And your choices are, wait, what? Or, yeah, I get it. Or, meh. Nice. Hey, uh, you know, reminder: uh, if you send, if you drop us a comment, uh, we'll send you the book. I should mention to you, like the the whoa 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 whoa, whoa. <laughs> leave a comment and you have a chance to get the book. What did I say? <laughs> <laughs> what is oh going God. on here? We're about uh, to go broke. <laughs> and then it's oh, leave, yeah, there's a chance to chance to win. Yeah. yeah well, uh, I was gonna say <laughs> the digital copy is free, so I'm assuming. If you leave a comment that you're going to want the physical, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I was joking at the start when I asked, like, hey, are we going to give uh, a copy away for free? Because the very next line in the notes is, hey, this book is available for free. Yeah, nice. All right. oh, that's funny. Yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. Well, yeah, yeah, we can give away a physical version, too. So, you know, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. If you're dying to have a copy, let us know. There is an <laughs> audiobook version. Maybe maybe yeah. it would be nice if we give that away. Good. Yeah. Totally. It's so, awesome. I've been listening to it. Yeah. So if, if, yeah, if you leave a comment on this episode, you can let us know if you want a physical copy or if you just want to leave a comment or if you'd like an audiobook. You know, there you go. Before we start this next ch- section, though, I just have like one small rant to, I need to get off my chest. If you, if you would let me. I think circles are pointless. <laughs> All right. We can go on. All right. I got that out. Oh boy. Okay. I like it. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about uh, Google's approach to this problem. So, site reliability engineering uh, <laughs> is a fo- <laughs> the idea is to focus on hiring software engineers to run their products, not sysadmins. They create systems to accomplish the work that would have historically been done by sysadmins. And I remember I used to work with a, a guy that was like a sysadmin slash DBA. This person had an amazing superpower. They could sleep sitting up just in their chair. And then you'd be like, hey, George, can you put this in production? For me? George, jo- 
George, I emailed, can you run this query? And then he would eventually do it. And they're trying to get away from that by building systems rather than having kind of people sitting in those spots, uh, sitting idle uh, often and, and or either vacillating in between sitting idle and freaking out all the time because something is wrong. Hmm. So uh, a nice quote they had here is that SRE is what happens when you ask a software engineer to design an operations team. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Like that. And they've got a, a nice breakdown coming up right now. Uh, they say that SRE role, the responsibilities can be broken down into two main categories. 50-60% are Google software engineers or people that were hired during the standard hiring procedure. And 40-50% were candidates who were very close to the Google software engineer qualifications but didn't quite make the original cut. This isn't the breakdown I thought it was. All right, but, so so hold up, hold up. Right, it's a harsh <laughs> breakdown. Yeah, it's I very hard. Say, this is not what I thought it was. Gosh, like yo, um, so so outlaw, you did pretty well <laughs> on the interview, but you're not quite software engineer material for us. But How did they say this. But I think you'd be great at at being an SRE. Like you want to come work for us. Like that that sounds pretty good, right? <laughs> I guess. I, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they don't frame it like that when they call you back, right? But but that is kind of brutal that they say it. Although, Joe did mention at the top of the show what their compensation is, and it's not terrible. So, it's so being, being second best and still, and still making the cut is not terrible. But what a weird thing to say. And I do have a feeling they're talking about like the initial kind of wave of SREs here. Uh, and, and they mentioned and initially they had skills that would be very valuable for SREs, but that were not as common for typical software engineers, like being good with, uh, you know, knowing Unix or whatever, networking knowledge. Uh, and so Google has tracked the progress of these two kind of career paths. And they said uh, there was very little difference in the performance over time. So whether they were more kind of traditional software engineers or uh candidates that were a little lighter on software engineering but had those other skills like Linux or uh, networking that kind of bolster there. Yeah, cool. so the key takeaway here is if you were in that 40% that didn't quite make the original cut, like the, the top tier cut, it didn't seem to really matter. And so total tangent here, we've talked about this in the past, right? Like just some of the interviews at some of these larger companies, right? Like the fan companies, they can be really difficult, right? And some people aren't going to make that cut, but does that mean that they wouldn't have been a great fit and a great developer for that company? Not necessarily. No. It doesn't mean that. Like, I mean, we've laughed about the fact that you, you you have to do the traveling salesman algorithm in an interview, and then you get in there and you're, and you're shifting pixels around on the page because you're doing like UI stuff. And yeah, or you get questions like how many golf balls can fit into a 747 or yeah, here's one. I don't know if you've heard this one. Why can't your nose be 12 inches long? And then be a foot. There you go. <laughs> Joe gets the job. Yes. <laughs> but. But yeah, so it is good to know that they did call this out. Like right after they talked about the fact that, you know, the first part are the top tier hires and the second ones are like the, the ones that didn't quite make that cut. They both tracked almost identically in terms of career growth and, and their path and all that. So that's, that's really good to hear. Yeah. And rem, this isn't what they're doing today. This is what like their kind of initial, you know, launch, who knows what they're doing today. But when they first started hiring SREs, 
they took you know half the past and half they took a chance on and uh, figured out that they worked out the same. Yep. Um. So one of the things that is cool about this is they they looked at these software engineers and these ones that are going to be automating these old sysadmin tasks. And there were, there were some things that stood out to them in this hiring process. Software engineers get bored doing repetitive tasks. That's so spot on. I know I like, give me a boring task and, and I have a hard time staying focused on it. Like I, I seriously struggle with it. It is terrible. Um, but software engineers, when they get handed these things, they think, well, how could I get rid of this repetitive task, right? Like, how could I make this go away? And that's a really interesting hiring perspective. I don't even, I never even thought of it as more of like, a, you know, our nature to get bored or by or repetitive tasks. It's just more like, okay, how can I just make my life a little bit easier? And I don't want to ever have to do that thing again. So I'm just going to like write something so I can write it the one time. And then the next time you ask me to do it, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm going to spend the next three hours working on it. And then instead I'm going to click this button and then I'm going to go ride my mountain bike. <laughs> And then so, come back and be like, whoa, still slaving away on it, boss man. Yep, just finished. So yours is inconvenience. Mine <laughs> is straight up boredom. I, I cannot do repetitive tasks. Now, see, my my with deal with that is I like automate the first time. So the second time when I'm asked to do it, I can quickly push the button and run it because I'm actually like three weeks behind on the other stuff I was supposed to have done. <laughs> so I need to be automating some of the stuff. Otherwise, I'll really never get done. And the sad reality, though, is like as we as we uh, get older in life, well, I mean, I, we will get older. I'm 21 at the moment, so I don't have to worry about this yet. Yep. But, yep. you know, eventually, like, you know, the memory cells aren't what they used to be. So you're like, you want to like not necessarily like, automate it but it's automated as a form of documentation so you could just ensure that like you did you don't have any typos anymore in in your execution of that thing that's right so yeah i, I gotta get this written down because I, I don't got much thinking left <laughs> <laughs> the site that boom hour yeah that show's coming back um oh for real yeah it's coming back that's awesome anyway uh so sre teams must be focused on engineering uh traditional ops groups scale linearly by service size the bigger the service the more people you hire uh by contrast sre teams (laughs) uh don't uh, so <laughs> more efficient. Wait, wait to cap. That. Yeah, to cap. Had to cap that off there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is too late for me, y'all. It's too late. You know what's so good is I think that was actually a great presentation tact that you did right there. Right, like that. That was <laughs> leave them hanging for a minute. <laughs> yeah, make sure you're still awake. <laughs> so. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, in order to encourage the kinds of behavior that Google wants to see, they put a 50% utilization cap on SREs doing traditional ops works. They say they do not want you doing more than 50% of your job doing things like backups, deploys, um, you know, monitoring, alerting, production support type stuff. They want to cap it at 50%. This ensures that the SRE team has the time to automate and stabilize the software through automation. Because if they don't give you time to automate, you're just going to be fighting fires all day. 
this was my favorite part of this chapter far and away yeah. was the fact that they that they just automatically time box it to say like you can only work on this but so much of the time we need you to like actually focus on making things better isn't that cool i mean like imagine they say all right monday tuesday you are on ops calls right um wednesday through friday we want you to automate the things that you dealt with monday and tuesday and then and then basically what they say is hey after a little bit of time you're no longer spending any time on those ops calls because you automated all that stuff. Yeah, this requires strong management when you think about it, though, because what you're kind of saying is like, hey, you know what? Uh, we've already spent 50% of our week on deploys this week, so we're not doing this deploy for you on Thursday, or and we're not going to check on your backups for you on Friday. We're not going to look in your logs on where we're going to work on automating and that only works if your management is willing to say, you know what? They're right. They spent the time they were supposed to, and you've got to leave them alone to automate this or else we'll never catch up. Well, but, my guess is they'd probably have a rotation, right? Like, yeah, you know, there'd be a few guys doing it or gals doing it Monday, Tuesday, and then a couple doing it Wednesday, Thursday, whatever. Kinda. Kinda? Oh, you read for an asterisk on that. Yeah, we'll get it. We'll get there. Because later yeah. in the book, there's a whole section on like um, error budget. And one of the things is that, like, you could decide that, like, hey, I can only afford to have, we'll get in this more detail when we get to that chapter, but you might decide, like, hey, I can only afford 15 minutes of downtime, you know, for whatever given time interval you you have, right? However you spend that 15 minutes, you know, uh, if you spend if you spend it all, then, you know, you might not be able to do any more new releases because those new releases could potentially increase, you know, add more downtime. And so therefore like once your downtime budget is used up, it's used up period. And they actually made a point of calling out that like, it might not be you or any, you know, any member of your team uh, that's responsible for it. It might not even be, you know, anyone in charge of like the physical machine. It, it could be something like the uh, power distribution to the rack that, that died. But, it spent your entire error budget. And so now for the quarter, you might not get to do new deployment, right? Interesting. Yeah. It to- sounds totally crazy to me, but it's interesting. And so I'm, and, I'm, I'm keeping my mind open. Well, so that's why his point about the strong management is uh, so, so relevant though, because it really does you know require that everybody agree. Everybody buys in to this and they agree to this. Right. And they're saying, yep, we, we've spent our budget and we have to wait until whatever our time interval is before we can do it again. Yep. Uh, next quote here, too, is uh, they said they want systems to be automatic, not just automated. And one thing they mentioned here is that uh, SREs tend to build up like a playbook of basically, you know, common things, scripts, um, tasks, you know, things that need to happen on a regular basis. And they, that's a good stepping stone to fully automating that stuff. And, but the ultimate goal is to have that stuff be built into the system itself. So whatever, you know, human decisions are being made there get kind of built in. Yeah. I mean, I love this because think about like how many times do you have an alert get triggered because some, some condition happened and then you have a playbook of like, Hey, if there's ever this alert, here's how you go and fix it. And their point was, well then just automate the fix. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, that shouldn't be an alert anymore. Um, 
So one of the key call outs here too is, Hey, the only way to make sure that, that they are spending 50% on, on development instead of, you know, pure ops work is you have to measure it. Right. And that again, goes back to good management and, and making sure that that's actually happening. And that, then, this is my least part part of the book. I don't want, I don't want to be tracking time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same, same. Um, but they also called out that they, Google has looked at this and SRE teams are cheaper than ops teams because the SRE, the SRE teams know the product well and they find out ways to prevent the problems that come up. And so you don't have people doing the same thing over and over and over, over, you know, months and years. Yeah, and there are a couple of challenges with SREs uh, they brought up here. So um mentioned uh, hiring being hard. Uh, to, first of all, the, the kinds of people that you're trying to hire are the kinds of people that everyone wants to hire, the people who know how to, to do stuff, whether it's um you know product work or even networking stuff. It's kind of the middle position. So uh, it's competitive even with your own org, not let alone like other work. And at the um, time, this was a new title. So how do you yeah. tell somebody, hey, I'm trying to hire you to be a flippity flippity They're like, wait, what is that job? You're like, oh, site reliability. Shibba shibba. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, the book doesn't mention it, but also, uh, pretty sure SREs all wear pagers. So <laughs> that to me is a big downside there. So it's like, you're telling me you're going to pay me this or pay me that. Both the same. Great. One has a pager, one doesn't. Hmm. I didn't see. <laughs> now, come on now. They didn't say anything about pagers. No, they didn't. But that's because they're they're biased. <laughs> they're <laughs> that's, lying. that's the dirty secret truth. That, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they anyway. they honestly don't. But you know, they don't talk about any kind of pager duty or anything. At least not in the portions that I've read so far. They call they talk about on call schedules and how many defects you should be looking into per uh, on call rotation. Yeah. So. Yeah, on call right. usually implies that. So, um, and then, and then like he has here, it requires dev skills as well as system engineering, right? Like that was that thing that Outlaw was talking about, you know, good software engineer with, with decent, um, system skills or vice versa. You need that mix. And they didn't mention, uh, here either, but, um, also, uh, I think good communication is, of course, important for everyone, but especially good for SREs because, uh, the postmortems are, I think it's really tricky to kind of get those right. And we'll be talking about postmortems later as well. <laughs> uh, also, one last thing well, we already touched on this is requiring strong management in order to kind of protect those boundaries that, uh, yeah, and being able to, to kind of have the back of the team in order to say no. So, all right. So this is just another DevOps title, right? Is that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, the book goes there. It, they say that DevOps is kind of a generalization of several core, you know, SRE principles uh, applied to kind of a wider range of orgs and stuff. But uh, basically, they say that an SRE uh, is a specific implementation of DevOps with some idiosyncratic extensions. And they are saying that SRE is a role and that SRE is DevOps. It's part of DevOps. So in a way, they are making the argument that DevOps is a role. Is a role. Is a culture. <laughs> this reminds me of Monty Python, right? <laughs> she, yeah. What else floats? Ducks. Does she weigh as much as a duck? Yes. She's a witch. <laughs> and this is something we struggle with all the time because we, we do know, you know, the reason why we fight about this is we say that it's very important that the, the DevOps people be like intimately aware of the product and how it works and how it needs to work and how, you know, 
the what the things that are important to it. They need to know the product. And that's why it's important that your people working on the product know how to run their own stuff. And the SRE, I think, accomplishes that by having that 50% kind of budget where they work on the product work and automating the work. And so I think that's how they they uh, reconcile that, at least in my mind. Well, I was thinking of it as like uh – if you if you adopt DevOps as your culture, then SRE is the position that comes out of it. I like it. Yeah, that's that sounds about right. So we agree DevOps is a culture. I win <laughs> with positions. With you know. <laughs> with DevOps, everybody wins. Allah. Yes, I everybody believe so. Wins. So here are some tenants of SRE. Well, we're going to just kind of blast through the list here, and then we're going to focus on each one uh, a little bit. Roughly, roughly. Uh, so availability. And you got that. This first one. Uh, latency. Performance. Efficiency. Change management. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I had me to that one. Uh, monitoring. Emergency <laughs> response. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this one is definitely just. <laughs> I think the vowels on my keyboard aren't working very well. <laughs> or or in my mouth, I guess. <laughs> Emergency. <laughs> and finally, a uh, capacity plan. What's the first letter of that word? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's okay. going on. <clears throat> uh, so first, let's talk a little bit about availability, which uh, they refer to here. It's basically a durable focus on engineering. So in order to keep the time for project work, we said SRE should receive a maximum of two events per eight to 12 hour on-call shift. That's a very specific and small number. I'd be good with that number. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. They say if you have less than two, then you got too many SREs or you're not doing enough publishing, right? You're not taking enough chances. You're not, you're doing, it's kind of like gold plating, right? It's kind of funny, but two is still a pretty small number. I mean, I, I've I've had days where I would have loved to have it for it to only have been two. Yeah, that's eight. yeah. And yeah. there's days when you know one one outage basically take more than one day too. So, sir, they don't really say how big it is, but uh, the idea is just that the low volume allows the engineer to to really get in there, spend the adequate amount of time uh, in order to fix the problem, and then write up a good post mortem about what happened. That's the that's the really time consuming part though. That that post mortem can be consuming. Yeah, if you do it well with timestamps and everything and like exactly what happened, how you found the problem, like that's not that's not fun. That's not fun. So sometimes I think I want to be an SRE and then I think about postmortems and pagers and I think maybe no. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't know. I think I, I think I would still like it. I like yeah. production support stuff. So anyway, all right, so uh, uh, we'll just give all the production support stuff to to Joe and let him be the on call person. Yeah, but I uh, well, crap, I only I only do like half the work as anyone else anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, a big part of those force memos too uh, is that they have to be blame free, which is something we've talked about uh, this sh- on the show before. Which is just the idea that. You're not attaching really people to it. It's just more about the processes and where things went wrong and you're not looking to try and blame someone, which is very easy to do. Another another concept from the DevOps handbook. Yep. Was totally. blame free. Yeah, and they also say that the postmortem should be written for all 
significant incidents when paged or not. So even if you saw an issue and it did, it didn't alert anything that you should still write the same postmortem for it. Yep. Which is pretty, pretty disciplined. It's yeah. I, I, I guess where it, I, I guess good. where I struggle with some of that too. And this is where like the two events could, the, the limitation of the two events uh, could come from because like I could see spending like a, a pretty good amount of time just on some of the write-ups for those things, depending yeah. on the level of event, obviously, but you know, in the, in the severity of it. And so like, I, I kind of wonder like, you know, if they have any kind of guidance, maybe they'll get to it later in the book, but if they have any kind of guidance on that postmortem, like you shouldn't be spending more than like 30 minutes max writing that thing. If you can't write it in, in that amount of time, then it's you're either putting too much detail into it or it's like a much, much larger problem, you know? Yeah. And I will say too. Um, so they mentioned eight to 12 hour on call shifts and uh, doing these postmortems. You're talking about hours of work. These on call shifts are happening during your kind of work hours. Basically, this isn't, you're on call from, you know, Saturday night, whatever type stuff that where you're writing these postmortems and doing, you know, the, these hours of work. So, you know, I, I've been joking about the pager thing, but I think a big part of it is that these are kind of your normal work hours. You're just the person with the bat phone, you know, that needs to kind of take point on it. Uh, max change velocity. So uh, this section is referred to uh, latency. And normally when we type out latency, you talk about like, the amount of time, you know, idle in a browser or something, or, you know, waiting for input and output. But in this case, we're actually talking about the uh, limiting the amount of change. And this is where we talk about uh, things like an error budget, which is an interesting way to kind of balance innovation and reliability. Because uh, if you are pushing out new features, breaking things, doing things that require maybe scheduled maintenance, right? And let's face it, like most changes can be done even to databases, a lot of times these days without any sort of downtime, but you might choose to take the database down because it's a lot faster and easier than trying to migrate in such a way that where you like, I don't know, bring up a replica, spin it up, sync it over while you make changes. You know, it's just expensive and time consuming a lot of times to do zero downtime deployments. And uh, so um, the idea here is to have an error budget where you decide based on a couple of factors we're going to talk about in a second, how much tolerance your users have for disruption yeah this goes back to where that that hundred percent uptime um is generally considered not worth it and it gets more expensive as you get closer to that uh that hundred percent mark and your customers might not even uh you know realize it and so therefore trying to get to that hundred percent is just wasteful yeah and well what is the right number is a business decision you know it depends on a lot of factors like um, you know, what the users expect, how important your, or how, I shouldn't say important, how critical your service is. Like, do they have a workaround? Um, how well does the experience degrade if part of it is working, but another, uh, another isn't? Uh, I it was terrible with the typos today. Mama. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, do you ever had a, a manager push back when you're talking about uh, tenant uh, technical debt and you're talking about what you need to do and, you know, it's important that we refactor this and that because it's taking too long to uh, to actually make changes here. And the manager pushes back and they say, it's fine for now. We've got things that need to go out the door because we're waiting and the business is going to die if you don't have this done by Friday night. Um, I thought one thing that's kind of nice about um, just 
having the measurements here to kind of show what your actual uh, disruption is and your disruption budget, it's kind of a nice way to say like, hey, this is what we're losing by pushing stuff out faster. Or this is what we're losing by not pushing things out faster. The problem is though, like when you're a large enterprise company, it's easy to have it's easier to have these types of tenants totally. in your company, right? And for management to buy in. But when you're a small business and you know, like maybe there's twenty developers total in the company, right? It's it's a much bigger deal to like for that for the management to buy into some of these things. Yeah, tech that especially hard to manage or to measure because you're talking about measuring something that is an idea to a certain degree, right? Um unless unless you take measurements early, like it's much easier to do at the beginning if, if you do this, but if you measure, hey, how long did it take to get a feature out and deploy? You know, when we first started this versus, you know, a year in now, these these releases are taking two weeks longer. You know, if you measure it all the way through, then you can do that. But when you're just talking about things that people have short term memory loss on, it's hard to throw those metrics at a manager and be like, look, if we don't spend time on this tech debt, this is just going to get worse and worse. And that's just an idea. And they're like, work harder, (laughs) you know, and and that's that's hard to fight. Yeah, there was like going back to like, what's the amount of uptime, you know, and, and that being a business decision later in the book, they, they talk about an example where, um, you know, even for the same product, the same service, you might have two versions, you might decide to have two versions of that thing that run at different levels of uptime and, you know, you charge differently for them. Right. Because maybe they're actually targeting different customers, like maybe different customers want to use that product different ways. And so they they use the example of like big table um, with customers who want to do it as for batch type jobs to where, um, you know, they don't need it to be super reliable, you know, 24 seven. But when they do, they want to slam it and they want like they don't want any idle time, right? Because they, they want to just get the job done as fast as possible versus another customer who might want, you know, five nines of reliability 24 seven because of whatever their need might be. And so that ultra high reliability uh, use case, you know, we're talking about the same software, but we're going to configure it in two different ways for different purposes. Right. So that's where that, that business decision comes into play. Um, that you know, we as the software developers won't won't care. We won't decide that. Hey, doesn't S three have two levels of durability? Do you like? I think it's like six nines or eleven nines or something. Um, doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, good call. Uh, so fun question. Uh, what could a team do if there's no more room in the budget for uh, for for downtime? Yep. As far as like they don't get to do anything, you mean in terms of like new deployments, right? Or did you mean like what can they do to solve that for next time? What, uh, I just meant like what do you do? Is it basically nothing? Like you you oh, do yeah. think you don't do anything risky, right? You, you calm it down, just you know a hard pill to swallow sometimes. And that was Google's answer, yeah. by the way, was that well then you know they they talked about it on like quarterly budgets, and they're like, yeah, well you know crazy. you 
uh, unfortunately that, um, that networking switch or that uh, power distribution block, whatever the case might be, you know, it just happened to die in that rack. And so it spent the entire budget. All right. Well, you don't get to do any more deployments for the quarter, mm. you know? Yep. That's, so it seems so unlikely to me, but I mean, that's the premise. So I'm, I'm trying to keep it in mind. Just imagine like S3, someone spills a, uh, a champagne on January 1st, <laughs> a little too much drink in the server room and they knock a rack out and, uh, you know, there's an outage for one day and that's the entire budget for the quarters. Seems crazy to think that, you know, they would accept that, but this, that's the premise we're going after. So I guess, you know, in an extreme case, they would maybe make an exception, but that is uh, what we're kind of the assumption we're operating under. But here's a, here's a more fun question. What do you do if you're at the end of the quarter and you still got budget? <laughs> you just release everything. <laughs> I was going to say, you just turn it off. Just take a break. <laughs> no. Be back on Monday. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I don't think it works like that. <laughs> no, I think, uh, the, I mean, the real question is, yeah, I mentioned uh, like database migrations and stuff. Like there's lots of times where like a rolling upgrade is the right answer and then you apply a migration and then once everybody's transitioned, you do like another rolling upgrade and then you do whatever. Or you can just take the site down for three hours and have it all done and everyone there is one room and, you know, you could do something in three hours that would have taken three weeks otherwise. So I think, yeah. you know, that's the kind of stuff you can do. But you got to be careful with that budget. It's good. Yeah. But even in that scenario, though, it's going to depend on oh, yeah. what the services that you're doing. Because, like, if the thing that you're trying to do is like Google.com, then you're probably not going to want to take any, like, you're not going to want to, like, purposely introduce that downtime. But, uh, right. you know, some of these examples are, like, hard to discuss too in the, as, as it relates specific to Google, because we're talking about, like, such a massively, a uh, distributed worldwide system. And, and they even call this out in like uh, part, a part of the book where they're talking about like, you know, like I, I can't, I've twice, at least twice now given an example about like losing a power distribution or, or network switch within the rack. Right. But even in a Google, you know, it, the way Google is set up, like everything is distributed across so many systems and across so many different regions and across so many different areas around the globe that, you know, even if they were to lose like an entire continent, there's possibility that some portion of that service might be serviced by another country or, you know, or something like that. Right. Right. So here, here's a question I didn't ask, but should have, um, uh, as a, like a, I don't know, or owner of a company or, or a director of a uh, organization, how do you enforce your budget? You tie it to bonuses. <laughs> you tie it to raises, you tie it to whatever you say is your, uh, air budget. And uh, if you stay within this budget, you get this much more bonus. And that's a way to kind of encourage everyone to take it very seriously. Yeah, I could see that working. All right. So next we're on to monitoring. And this one's pretty important. So monitoring is how you track the system's health, right? Like that's everybody's probably pretty familiar with that. Well, the classic approach to this, and this is probably what most companies out there do because this is how people have operated forever, is – when there's a problem, an alert gets sent out and, and that happens when there's like some sort of event that happens in the process or some threshold was crossed, whatever, but you, you know, the, the gist, right? Some alert was sent out and, and typically when that alert gets sent out, then somebody goes and handles it somehow, right? Like going to go look at production or whatever the case may be. Well, they say that this is a flawed approach because anything that requires human intervention 
is by its very definition, not automated. So they're saying that software should be interpreting whatever is happening and people should only be involved if software can't take care of the problem. And honestly, this, this makes a lot of sense, but this isn't how most people have thought about it over time. Right. Um, and so they say that there are three types of valid monitoring that you have. You have an alert and that means that a person needs to take immediate action, right? That they have to get involved. There's a ticket. So this is when the system can't automatically handle whatever happens, but it doesn't need to be looked at immediately, right? Um, create a ticket. Somebody can get it done within the next couple of days and then logging, logging. Nobody needs to do anything. Probably never even look at them unless there's some sort of event that says, Hey, you need to go look at these logs. So that's what they call out. And they really want to minimize the amount of human interaction that happens in the system at all. And then the next piece that we got here is the emergency or emergency response. <laughs> and <laughs> it's actually the same thing. So it's pronounced differently. It is the same thing. That's right. Emergency. Um, so I have a quote in here because you just couldn't have said it any better. Reliability is a function of mean time to failure, which you've probably seen as MTTF before and mean time to repair. So MTTR. So, the best metric for determining the effectiveness of the emergency response is the mean time to repair, how quickly you got things back into a healthy state. Um, people add latency. This is really good. This is why they want systems to handle everything because people are slower. Um, yeah, you're even, away at dinner when you get the alert or you're driving your car. So you, you can't possibly, you know, get to a computer within, the next 30 minutes to even look at it. Like those are, those are, that's latency that the people are adding. Yeah. And, and usually there's even communication on top of that, right? Like we, we've talked about in the past an alert goes out. All right, well now I need to coordinate with this person, that person, whatever. Um, but what they're saying here, and, and this is pretty cool is if you can avoid having a person be involved at all, even, if there was a problem and it require and it takes a little bit of downtime, if the system can handle it, ultimately it'll probably be more available than it was if a person had to touch it in the first place. And that's pretty cool. Now here's another part. And this, this is pretty good thinking through problems before they happen and creating the playbooks. They said, resulted in a three times improvement in the meantime to um, reliable or repair as opposed to winging it. So like what that Margaret Hamilton did, right? Where she had written that thing up. The fact that she had it there meant that the people could go look at the instructions on how to get the thing back into a healthy state instead of people going, Oh, I think you do this. And maybe if you, maybe if you do that, it just, it goes a lot smoother. And then they also said that their on-call SREs, they always have playbooks when they're doing things. And then they also go through these exercises they call wheel of misfortune that allows them to prepare for these events. So my guess is they probably simulate some sort of failure and say, all right, go fix it. Right. And, and that's probably what happens. I really learned the idea of that, but 
uh, the wheel of misfortune. But then I was also thinking like, okay, wait a minute. Is this just like part of the hiring process? You give a new candidate the wheel of misfortune, see what they do to fix the environment. Or do you like really play this? Like, Hey, on Fridays, we're going to play wheel of misfortune. <laughs> the chaos monkey, but uh, you're part of it. Yeah. 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 So change management, uh, interesting stat here. 70% of outages are due to changes in a live system. Uh, which I guess makes sense. You wouldn't expect outages to happen in dead systems, but it was still kind of surprising to me to see that. Um, a couple of best press, uh, practices we got here, uh, progressive rollouts. So, you know, we've talked about like canary deployments before, just um, rolling upgrades where uh, nodes or instances or whatever kind of go out one at a time. And if things are not looking good, you can stop it or roll back to like a blue green environment. There's all sorts of different ways of doing this, um, but th- that's the gist of it. Uh, in order to do that, you need to be able to actually detect problems accurately and quickly, and then actually be able to do that rollback if possible. So that's the kind of stuff that uh, SRE is going to be building into systems because that stuff is not trivial, especially once you start talking about data migrations. And the idea here is just to remove people from the loop. So automate, automate, automate. Uh, another fun one. This uh, this is one that I especially enjoy. Demand forecasting, <laughs> demand forecasting, and capacity planning. So the idea here is that forecasting helps you ensure service availability and keeping your costs, uh, you know, in check and kind of within budget. And the idea here is to account for both organic, which is like your normal usage patterns, but also to try and account for inorganic uh, growth, which is things like. Uh, major launches or uh, marketing events or maybe, uh, you know, uh, some celebrity tweets about your product or something and getting some sort of unnatural spike. And um, that's, you know, really hard to do, but you can kind of imagine what that would look like with like 10x or 100x growth on um, any sorts of numbers that you come up with. Uh, Three steps here. So uh, I like this one. Uh, You need to have accurate organic forecast. And the important um, bit here is that you need to have your forecast extend beyond the lead time for adding capacity. So if it takes you three months to order a new server, then you better be forecasting out more than three months. If it takes you an hour to add a new node or to, I don't know, add a new load balancer or whatever it is, then you need to forecast at least that much. So I thought it was kind of an interesting way of saying like, figure out what your lead time is for capacity, whether it's disk instances, nodes, like uh, all that stuff, because (laughs) you may need it. Uh, Also, you need to try and incorporate inorganic demand. They didn't go into this. Maybe they do in a later, you know, portion, but I imagine this is just kind of like trying to say like, well, this is what the spike would look like if you try to imagine, you know, what would happen if you sign on a big tenant or a big client or, you know, Taylor Swift tweets out your product or something. And imagine there's some just multiplication of numbers there. And then the final piece here of the Triforce, regular load testing. This is not something you do when you just once when you launch a product. This is something that needs to be ongoing because you're making changes to the system all the time. And so you need to have that be a part of it. That stuff takes time. But also consistent with the DevOps handbook. Yeah, yep, totally. 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 At uh, least in terms of like the regular load load testing. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, this is very similar. So provisioning, and just kind of like we said earlier, the faster your provisioning is, the later you can do it. So if something takes three months, 
you need to figure out three months, you know, ahead of time in order to order it. Uh, if something only takes five seconds to provision, like maybe adding more RAM or something or adding another node, then you can do that like five seconds before you need it. And what that means is you can be much more efficient with it, right? So if you're uh, ordering servers three months ahead of time, there's a good chance you're going to get that server before you need it. It's going to sit around idle. It's going to take a while to get plugged in. Uh, you may not even need it at all. Uh, just less efficient overall to bite things off in bigger chunks like that. So the, the, another way of saying this is the later you can do it, the less expensive it's going to be. And they also mentioned that not all scaling is created equally. So like adding a new instance to a stateless workload, like trivial, right? You can set up auto scaler and you don't even have to think about it anymore. Uh, adding another uh, partition to a Kafka topic, like, ooh, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of implications there that have uh, effects on producers and consumers and uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, maybe even replication. And it's going to take a little while to roll out. It's, it's going to be a process. And so uh, it's just about kind of figuring out everything you need to care about and what it takes to, to maintain it. Looking at the next section. So the last one here is efficiency and performance. So uh, basically the SREs are in charge of provisioning and usage. So they're close to the money. They're responsible for it. People are going to ask them, how much is this going to cost? How much did we spend? How much can you save us next quarter? And so it's important that you know how to maximize your resources, which uh, fundamentally affects the source, uh, sorry, the success of a project, which is pretty cool when you think about it. So you were joking earlier when you said that we could tie it to their, uh, you know, tie the, tie the, tie it to the bonuses, but maybe not so no. much. <laughs> no, I, I really don't think so. I think that like that would be if you were in charge of a, you know, a team that had, uh, you know, a cloudy type project, it makes sense that you, every year you say, I want you to save, nine percent uh operational costs and if you do you get 100 percent of your bonus if not it's gonna start scaling down or whatever so and you know it's uh, it sounds a little cold to say it like you know that but i think the, the idea is that by associating it with a financial incentive like you're really sending a strong message to the whole organization that this is important and people are gonna <laughs> really get you know uh get upset if your organization or your developers aren't taking, you know, these goals seriously. So people are going to come after you and it just keeps the org on track. Well, I mean, it might sound cold, but at least it puts it into, uh, something that's within your control, you know, yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> like how, how many jobs have you ever had where like, uh, you know, anything about bonuses or whatever, or, you know, uh, pay raises or anything like that. were like completely outside of your control. It's like, well, yeah. it depends on how well sales did. You yeah. Know, but I'm not in sales. Yeah, but you know, sales drives everything. And so, you know, you clearly, if you did a good job making the product, then they would have no trouble at all selling it. Right. And so therefore, you know, that's why your bonus is tied to how well they do. Yep. Really like, uh, your bonus is tied to uh, net profits, uh, but we're having a good year this year. So we're going to do a uh, stock buyback or we're going to double down on infrastructure or do whatever we can in order to make sure that profit doesn't show up on the books. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, uh, you know, kind of a, a cool little balance here they, they mentioned is that systems get slower as loaded added. It's never going to speed up as you add load to a system, right? 
Uh, and slowed can also be viewed as a loss of capacity. So your system starts blank slate, zero users is full capacity. Every user, every, you know, system that you bring online, all, all your traffic is reducing that capacity. So you're trading off the, how much money you spend to set that stuff up and have it available and the speed at which your system runs. So it's just kind of a cool way to think about uh, a system as basically being a balance between uh, capacity and usage and what that you know means to your cost and how much things cost to run. So you're excited to be in SRE, right? Like this is next in the in the career path. I I would be I think I would be happy. Like I tend to kind of like production support stuff too. Like if you want me to focus on a problem, just tell me that there's something wrong with it. <laughs> I I want to know. So I think I could be a, I would I would want to be a SRE. I actually like the um, I don't know the feeling of accomplishment that comes with automating a task, right? Like there's, there's almost, I don't want to say instant gratification here, but, but fairly quick gratification. If you were to automate things that people had to be involved in previously and seeing that happen is rewarding, right? Like that's part of what I like about, about doing software in general. So yeah, I think that that would be kind of interesting, right? Like this this self-healing, self-reliable system. That's that's pretty cool. I think it'd be cool to have goals like, uh, can I make builds uh, fail 10% less often? Or can I save, uh, you know, 10% uh, time or, you know, whatever, like increase uptime. Like, that all sounds like cool stuff to like come up with and go after to me. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say like, you know, automating and stuff is also fun too, right? But yeah. It is. So Alan said it better though. So did I? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so we'll have uh, a lot of links in this episode. Uh, you know, namely we'll have links to the book itself, which you can find for free, uh, sre.google slash books. Um, but we'll have that and other links in the, uh, resources we like section of that, of the episode. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. So this one's kind of apropos for this particular episode because we're talking about Google and, and their SRE stuff. Well, I had something, uh, an, an interesting thing come up the other day that had to do with caching and evictions at certain timeouts, like seeing if something had come in before. And if it had not doing it again, right? Like trying to dedupe stuff in, in sort of a smart way. And so in my mind, I was thinking, okay, well, if I, if I had some sort of cash or some sort of hash table, and if I could evict those members that were put in, you know, 15 minutes ago, right? Like anything that that's older than 15 minutes, kick it out because I don't care about it anymore. Then that would be interesting. It'd be a nice way to handle this particular caching type thing that I wanted to do. And so I got thinking about, I was like, man, there's got to be something out there. Right. And I, and I'm working in Java or more specifically, I'm working in Kotlin, but I can use some Java um, to make this happen. And Google, I've seen this library come up in a number of projects that I've looked at. I want to say maybe even Kafka stuff, Flink possibly. I don't even know. Um, but Guava. So Google has a library called Guava. I've put a link directly to the wiki. I didn't put a link straight to the project because there's not a bunch of information about what it offers in here, but this is a whole set of utilities, um, collections, graph 
capabilities, like all kinds of stuff that can help you in your regular Java application. So the one that I'm talking about that would have solved the problem that I was just mentioning is they have a caching thing. And in this cache, they have the ability to populate and evict from the cache on an automated type basis. And that's fantastic. They have immutable collections. So like if, you know, typically when you're looking in Java, you have, you know, your hash map or your map or whatever, and those are mutable. Well, they have immutable collections. They have these graph libraries. They have all kinds of things. So it's worth looking at this library because it solved a lot of problems that, that Google uses in their own distributed systems to solve a lot of issues that you may encounter. So I'd say, you know, I, I say it all the time with, with folks I work with and in general, maybe even on the podcast is, I'm not opposed to writing something myself, right? And I'm not opposed to other people writing something themselves. But a lot of times, if there is something out there that is already battle tested and it does what you need it to do, it's probably well tested and and been proven. So maybe it's worth looking at that. So um, definitely check this out if you are in the Java world, because it may help you out in a number of different ways. Well, I got a tip for Michael Outlaw today. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. bring it. Have you ever heard of uh, ch- get cherry pick? Well, let's you do is uh, pick a commit uh, over from one committed branch into another. And this is great if you have like multiple concurrent releases, or sometimes if you just goof something up or you need to bring something over from uh, from another branch into your branch. It's great. You just do get cherry pick and pass the commit hash. You can look up from any variety of ways and we'll get it. Well, today I did something uh, on accident. I accidentally pasted uh, the branch name that I was going to cherry pick from instead of the commit. I copied the wrong thing somehow. And it worked in the way that I, I expected. It grabbed the commit that wasn't in the branch I was cherry picking it to, uh, which is very surprising to me. And so I went and I looked at what all you could pass to cherry pick and surprisingly the docs uh not great like it doesn't actually mention that you can uh pass a branch name it's the very so, first example they give what's the, the current branch head points together oh okay yeah so, so that was going to be my question jay-z is if you'd had multiple commits in your other branch would it have grabbed those multiple commits yeah, so uh, so I did a little bit of reading on that, and it would have grabbed uh, the top commit. The latest. From, it, the, yeah, the latest. So just the one. But you can cherry pick multiple commits at one time, which I did not know. Uh, you can that. actually pass a range. So you can say like this commit hash dot dot. I think it's just two dots to that one. And it's going to grab a range, which is something I didn't know about. And many times I've gone and cherry picked a bunch in a row. And so that was kind of nice to know. There's actually a bunch of other different flags that are, are pretty cool too. Um, like uh, there's even one for no commit, uh, which is pretty interesting. It applies to changes uh, for the cherry pick uh, blah, 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 without actually making the commit. So it gives you a chance to kind of, you know, do it up, kind of slice it up and, and do it a little bit differently. But I just thought it was pretty cool to see that there were, there were other things there. There's also a sign-off flag in case you want to kind of uh, update a commit message. And, um, yeah, the the takeaway though is that you have to be if you're going to use that 
get cherry pick and then the branch name pattern, you have to be careful because you have to know that you only want the one single commit that is the tip of that other branch. Because if you only specify the branch name and nothing else, that's all you're going to get is that single yep. tip commit. And I'm fairly certain that this would not work if that commit, well, no, that branch couldn't be a merge. So, well, no, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is if the tip of that was, if that the tip of that branch was a merge commit, I still think you would have to apply the dash M to specify the main line. I believe I, I the point is, is like you might, your mileage may vary and you may run into trouble if that branch, if the top, if the tip of that com, uh, branch is a merge commit. You can also do a dot dot in your branch name. It'll get all of them. But so I don't think you should do any of these though. These are all <laughs> terrible. It's all really confusing. Like you really have to know this command and all this various flags in order to, to do this correctly. So this is a terrible tip. And you should just not do this if you can avoid it. I wasn't trying to go there at all. Uh, Please don't take that away from it. No, no, no. I think I seriously think that you should not be such like a weird behavior that you're relying on. So I don't think anyone should actually use this. This is an anti tip. Don't do this. The real tip is you should read the documentation for commands, even the ones that you've run a million times before and just see because sometimes there's stuff in there that might help you out that you've kind of overlooked and, you know, there's some good stuff in there. Not in this case, though. These are all terrible. But so you said there are. You said RTFM is your tip. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just sometimes. Every once in a while. Give it a shot. Yeah. Okay. Okay. RTFM. I'll have to make a note of that. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I can't. Uh, yeah. I can't. Remember. Uh, okay. Well, uh, so for my, my tip of the week, then uh, I had this one because, like, um, we, the three of us, we do a lot of stuff just using the keyboard, right? And and so, like, I know, like, a iTerm, for example. We're users of iTerm, right? And, right? Yes. Wait, whoa, right? I love it. No, yeah, <laughs> okay. definitely. So, so, like, you know, you could create multiple tabs. And, it, like, I, I have this habit of, like, I'll create tabs for different things. And, and it's in, like, I have the habit like on a Mac of going like, uh, well, I guess iTerm would only be on the Mac, but like, uh, command, you know, one or two or whatever the number of the tab is that I want to navigate to. Right. And I, I was going back to Chrome where I have like 18 billion tabs open in Chrome. And, uh, also Chrome introduced a feature, a few releases back where you can like group your tabs. I don't know if you've been doing that. Um, maybe that should have been my tip of the week. But yeah, you I can like, was. was it? Okay. You, cause you could like right click on a, on a tab and create a group and you can give it a number so you can, you know, have like different things that you're working on in different tab in, in different groups of tabs together that are all color coded together and everything. And it just makes like, if you, if you are like me and you have to context switch a bunch, you know, sometimes it's easier to have just a big group of tabs already together that, you know, are, or whatever that context switching is. But I also tend to have like some tabs pinned. And when you pin a tab in Chrome, they automatically go to the front. Right. So like for my, my Gmail, right. I'll have, I'll typically have Gmail as one of my uh, first tabs. I'll have Slack as another tab. I'll have my calendar as another tab, things like that. Right. And with all these 18 billion tabs open sometimes it's handy like i might be on you know tab 
123. And, but yet I want to quickly go back and check my email because I'll see like the notification or I'll see the Slack. I'll see that one of those two things has a thing. And I'm like, it got, you know, you can just like control your way through like control function, I think, uh, and arrow keys on the Mac keyboard to like scroll one direction or the other through all your 18 billion tabs that are open until you get to that one. But I found out you could also just on the Mac press control and the number and boom, navigate to that tab. Now that's great for your first 10 or nine tabs at least. But in my case, that was first eight. Yeah. Sorry. That, that was good enough because, uh, you know, like I said, like Gmail and Slack were like the two big ones and those are the, those are pinned. So they're always in that one and two position. Right. So at any rate, I'm going a long way around saying like control plus a number and then you can navigate to that tab. But so I'll also have a link there to just the Chrome shortcuts in general for that apply to both, uh, when to windows, Mac and Linux. But hold up, hold up. You said you have Slack open in a tab. Mm-hmm. Why do you not have the app installed, sir? Because I'm in Chrome more than I am anything else. So why would I? Because then you just have, then you can command tab to get to your to get to your Slack. I mean, you no, but it, then but then actually that's more annoying. So uh, I I will advocate for this. We will fight. So um, no, because now like if if you're in especially like if you're working on your laptop and like when I work on my uh, laptop, I tend to like take things into full screen mode on, on the Mac. So like if I have Chrome in full screen mode, that's all I see. And, um, but you can see all the tabs, you know, the headers for the tabs. And if there was a notification in Slack or if I had emails that came in, like I can see that notification while I'm in some other, you know, like while I'm reviewing a pull request or I'm, you know, uh, reading a build log or whatever, you know, I can see that and be like, oh, what is that? Control one or control two. And I can automatically go and check that thing, you know, a- as time allows for it. Right. Whereas if it was in another window, well, then until I happened to go click to that window, I might not even notice it. Yeah, that's full screen in Mac. I, I almost never do full screen in Mac for that reason. It, it annoys me. So even yeah, when you're on your the difference, even when you're just working solely on the laptop, you don't do full screen in the Mac. Nah, I hate. Okay, full we on found Mac. our yeah. survey. Okay, so forget that <laughs> other survey I asked. What? That is insanity. I, I straight up hate it for that very reason that it hides so many things from me that, and, and that is, there's, there's one other reason. There's one other reason. And this one's fully fair is because I use the kinesis advantage and trying to freaking contort your fingers to do something to switch between screens is like, I, I mentally no. have to jump through hoops to do that. But you wouldn't be using the kinesis advantage when you're on your laptop. And I'm saying when you're on the laptop, you, so Never. you don't have any other peripherals connected to it or else you're not on the laptop. Never. So, so, uh, I mean, he, there's two things. One is you reclaim some real estate, which is valuable if all the monitor you have is the laptop. But number two reason is actually exactly opposed to your number one reason. I want, I go full screen because I want the focus of whatever that app is. 
I, I don't want the distractions of the other thing. Yeah. Right. I can't, I can't have that. <laughs> That's the downside of having, of seeing that there is like an email or a Slack notification when I'm in Chrome full screen. Cause then I'm like, Oh, well, all right. Control yeah. one. What was it? Okay. Nothing big. Go back to my other window. And I can't like control 18 billion. So I got like, ah, oh, fine. I'll use the mouse to click on that tab. This is like dialing an old school phone number for you. Control one, two, four, five. Right, right. <laughs> I need a rotary dial to get through all my Chrome tabs. That's right. All right. Well, uh, we'll argue about why Alan is wrong later. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, more using your favorite podcast app. And uh, you know, if you haven't already left us a review, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review, where you can also let Alan know why he's wrong. I, I, I'm not wrong. Nobody likes full screen on Mac. That's All right, so <laughs> while you're up there at CodyBlocks.net, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more, and leave a comment on this episode at uh, CodyBlocks.net slash episode 181, and send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel at CodingBlocks.net slash Slack. And hey, uh, make sure to follow us on the bird site at CodingBlocks, or head over to CodingBlocks.net, and you find all the details at the top of the page. 